0: It all began in the fall of 1981. Some people never find what I found walking onto my college campus on the first weekend of school. I saw her. She was walking down the center of campus. I was with an older student in my dorm room, looking out the window when I looked at her and then turned to him and said, I'm going to marry that girl. He looked out the window at the girl walking down the middle of campus. Then he turned to me and said, no, you're not. That's Jane. She's the most spiritual girl on campus and you don't have a chance. (laughs) The following week, I found out that she was going to be on my sister floor and we would be seeing a lot of each other. As a matter of fact, she went to my first football game with her sister floor and fell in love with what she calls my chicken legs. On the second weekend of school, I walked into the cafeteria and saw her seated at a table with her sophomore friends. Walking through the line, I kept my eye on her to make sure that she didn't leave before I was seated at her table. Noticing she had a couple of seats left at her table, my friend and I sat down with these sophomore strangers. And this is when my personality kicked into high gear. Looking at Jane in front of all of her friends, I sat down next to her and introduced myself. And then I asked, what's your name? She replied, Jane. And she promptly continued eating her meal without looking at me. I knew right there that I had a chance. (laughs) My reply was confident. Great to meet you, Jane. Do you know that you are the second girl I've met here at college? And two is my lucky number. It works for me, but don't try it. (laughs) Needless to say, the whole table was in disbelief. I still don't believe I said that, but I couldn't back down now. The chances of that working were pretty low, but in that conversation at our first lunch, I did find out where Jane went to church and felt called there the next weekend. (laughs) That morning, I walked into the church service, found her friends and sat in the pew right in front of them and worshiped like I'd never have worshiped before. We dated for the next 34 years. 31 of those years, we were married. We had three children and a grandchild. We're in youth ministry together for 31 years, built a youth ministry from the ground up, pastored hundreds of students in a mega church, planted a young youth church on a university, and taught at the university level in youth ministry for 10 years, but that's when it all ended. See, some people never find what I lost. It was just two and a half years ago that Jane passed away after battling cancer for the past 16 months. It rocked our Western mindset that viewed our marriage as near perfect and our family as untouchable. We really had only known harmony as a couple, satisfaction with our kids, and fulfillment in our work. And this is where I had the first-hand glimpse of my broken palace. At the time, I first began to think that if the Lord tarried, I would not have my best friend to speak with daily. I mean, how could anything like this happen in my palace? You know, in the U.S.? I would never have my best friend to speak with daily. Our dates would never be made public on social media again. I would never kiss my queen. My last child would not have his mother at his wedding. Our grandchildren would not know their grandmother. We've had three since. Jane would not enjoy the fruit of our newly formed organization of coaching youth ministry across the country. I I mean, we've all changed so much and yet, Some things have never changed. No doubt that her impact is indelibly marked on our family and my ministry. But her death changed everything. And yet, nothing has changed. Because God was there at the beginning. And he's here at the end. Listen, I know... I'm not the only one in the room who's hurting this morning. I'm not the only one that has a story like this. I know in this room there are addictions, illnesses, sickness, marriages that are hanging by a thread. Parents who are here whose children are not. Children who are here whose parents are not. Maybe you came in today and this is your last chance. You said last night, maybe you said it this morning. You walked out of the car across the street or you walked up the sidewalk into this place and said, God, you have one more chance. How could you be God in the midst of what I'm going through? If God is so good, how come... If God is so good, why are children starving? If God is so good, why don't you answer my prayer? Listen, I'm not the poster child for suffering because I lost my wife of 31 years. As far as I'm concerned, I had 31 years, 34 years dating with the greatest person I've ever known. See, it gets down to perspective, doesn't it? why would i let anger or complaining or blame or isolation or bitterness ruin the rest of my life because i had a great life with a great wife and many of you are in the same situation today you're in, you you have to make a decision today about where you're at right now because what you're doing isn't working the way you're living and the way you're looking at the situation you're in, it isn't working. And, and I know you lost your job. I, I get that. Or you didn't get the raise or whatever. But what is your response? I, I want to look at the life of Job this morning. I know that kind of sounds like a bummer, doesn't it? It's like, Job, okay. <laughs> Let's go, everybody. Let's <laughs> job. It's almost like saying, let's study the life of Paul, (laughs) right? I mean, but in the book of Job, there are so many great lessons to be learned. I want you to go to Job chapter one. If you brought your Bibles, go to Job chapter one. The rest of you, you, you can look it up on your phone if you've got that app, right? Or just listen as I take you through this story. One of the most meaningful things that we can do in life is to look beyond our situation and to not get caught up in it. I wasn't ready when at my daughter's wedding, my wife came to me and said, honey, these bruises. And in the first four hours of that Saturday, she began to develop about eight or 10 bruises all over her body. And we, we had gone through the preparation and she pulls me aside and she says, you know, look at this. And I'm like, honey, you're exhausted. This is a, you're, we're just exhausted. Everything's going to be fine. And We go through the day and the ceremony and we go into the, the, the dinner, right. And, and the party afterwards, and we're all doing the electric slot, right. And we're, you know, we didn't have this yet. <laughs> didn't have that yet, you know. It wouldn't have mattered anyway, because it would have looked like, you know, (laughs) and we're in the middle of this. And she pulls me off to the side again, and she had a shawl on at this time. And we we counted about 24 or 25 bruises that began to grow all over her body. Perfect health. No warnings. That night we kissed our kids goodbye, our family goodbye. And on the way home, she said, honey, I really need to go to the hospital. And so we went to the hospital and spent the next 28 days there. And they diagnosed Jane the next day on Sunday afternoon with stage four metastatic melanoma, which is a skin disease that shows through lesions. And she never had any of that. She didn't have any sores, perfect skin. But our doctor said that her melanoma went into the bloodstream and 71% of her blood was now melanoma and they could do nothing. And she had two to three months to live. And I don't know about you, but I wasn't ready for that. Uh, Not in my palace. We live in the, God, do you know who I, do you know who I am? Right? You ever tried that with God? (laughs) And he's like, I'm supposed to be impressed. (laughs) See, we have to start thinking differently. Little did I know that two weeks before this wedding and the diagnosis, God would awaken me in the middle of the morning and ask me to, I wish he would have wakened me in the middle of the afternoon. Don't you sometimes, but it's like, God just in the middle of the morning, God awakened me. And I began to read the book of Job and he said, I want you to study Job. And I'm like, study Job. I'm in youth ministry. Let's find something fun. And I began to read this text and read through the story uh, several times in those two weeks. And I found out that as we walked into this moment in our life at that wedding and that evening in the next 28 days in the hospital, I began to realize that God plays chess and we play checkers. He's always one step ahead of us. Always one move ahead of us. We have to think differently with God. See, most of us have a great meology, but we have no theology. I'm about to come on whoever said that, so thank you very much. I hope you're not a quiet church, okay? See, oftentimes we look at our world and the things that we're going through in the lens of meology. And we forget about studying theology because hear me the right understanding of God has everything to do with how you deal with everything you can handle anything in your life if you have correct theology because God cannot be somebody he is not can I say that again for those of you that had to think that through right like our resident football player in the front who can't think straight let me say it slowly okay He's been hit a few times in the head, right? I give him a simple I asked him to do a simple thing. Could you just unlock my iPad? It's one, one, two, three. And he's like, What? Sometimes we just have to think through this. God cannot be somebody he is not. And the Bible says that he is love. And so that must mean that everything he does is based on that characteristic. See, the the greatest characteristic of of, of God, the greatest characteristic trait of God is love. I know, you want to say amen or oh my right there, right? I get it. It doesn't look like it, but we have to study correct theology and place God in the midst of our setting, whatever we're going through, And let him be himself. It didn't make sense to me. And what you're going through doesn't make sense to you. I I understand that. But to have a correct theology. Will help you get through anything that you're going through. And so look at. I'm just going to read chapter 1. Parts of chapter 1. And then we're going to hit the very last chapter. Because really in the story of Job. The first and the last is really all that matters. And in the story of my life, the first and the last is really all that matters. And in your story this morning, it's the first and the last that really matters. What you do in the beginning, in the beginning has everything to do with how you deal with the middle building that foundation of theology, building that understanding of God. Because most of us understand God without reading his word. That doesn't make sense to me. Right? As, as Western American thinkers, we develop our concept of God out of culture and not scripture. Mm. Can I tweet that again? In the Western American concept of God, we define our theology out of culture and not scripture. And we know culture. We know that we know who Justin Bieber is engaged to. And we know the latest right Taylor Swift song. And we know that Drake's album dropped and it's hot. But we can't quote scripture. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Yes, you can. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. right? And those of you that are really proficient in scripture could, could quote one more. Jesus wept. That took a while, didn't it? See, we don't get, we don't get our theology from culture. We get it from scripture. And if you can understand that, it will help you think through what you're going through right now. Because right now you're thinking, God, I don't deserve this. How could you? I prayed and you did it, so you must not be able to. Look at Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And he had all of these possessions and it lists those. Job had everything. And at the end of verse 3, it has this little description of him. And it says this. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Isn't that an interesting thought? Here is one of the greatest men living. And yet he's about to go through something that we would say isn't fair. you said it. It isn't fair that my company isn't. My neighbors treat me like they cut me off in the. It's not fair. Listen, you don't want what's fair. You, you don't want what's fair to you. You should be thankful that you live under grace and mercy. Into this story, this, this re- religious and spiritual man, comes this statement. If you look at verse 6 through 12, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came amongst them. How many know that we've seen, you see that in our life often, where Satan comes in and he just tries to do th- certain things, right? And he gets in the way. I, I don't believe everything, here, listen, I don't believe everything you're going through is Satan's fault. Most of it is our fault. And some of it is God's. I, I, I know you don't, you don't like that, and I'm messing with the tension in the room right now. You'll see that by the, before we're finished, most of what's going on in your life is not Satan's fault. It's yours. But some of it is God's work. Parents know what I'm talking about and how we raise our children. Sometimes we love them so much. They frustrate us and we have to take it out on them. (laughs) I do believe in the laying on of hands. Okay. (laughs) Love you kids. Love you. Are we recording this? This is not good. Probably. (laughs) I just got sued. I just got sued. But into this story comes Satan into the picture. And he asks for permission saying to God, the only reason this man serves you is because everything's good and you've protected him. Right. And God's like, that's not it. Trust me. You. Oh, you go ahead. But you can only go so far. He gives him a restriction. Right. Go ahead. Have your way. If I'm Job, I'm thinking, no, Lord, Lord, somebody could you do that to Drew? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have every, I'm all in, Lord, I'm all in. Do we really got to go there? You know, Satan, powerful guy. I'm doing good. Just like the skate. I just like to keep going. Don't we? We're that way, aren't we? When we barter with God, if you'll just bless me, then I'll serve you. What? Where did that come from? Where did that, it came from culture, not scripture. Because Christianity was born in hardship. So why would we think that Christians would be able to escape it? Oh, I love you. But I'm about to tell you the truth this morning. Hear me. This test comes. In the next few verses, the bad news comes like, one visitor after another. You ever had a bad day? Job had a bad day that was about to lead into a tough life. And this man hears all of this news. I don't, I don't understand how we can complain in America. I don't understand it. When you look at what Job went through or you see what Paul went through, And in these next few verses, this tragedy comes to him and he loses everything. He loses his house. He loses his cattle. He loses his children. And and the relationship with his spouse is destroyed. All of this is going on. I know what bad news is like. I, I know what it's like to sit there on Sunday afternoon, curled up in a ball with my wife saying, honey, this, this isn't real life, right? And then we had a choice to make. How were we going to deal with the hardship that was coming our way? What were we going to say? How were we going to think? What is my response? Do I believe everything that I've preached all my life? I mean, I've sat with teenagers who were depressed and attempting suicide. I've been in those hospital rooms and chalked students to get addictions out of their stomach. I've been there rescuing teenagers on the phone and sending leaders over to their house to keep them from destroying their life. I've talked to teenagers whose parents were killed in a car accident. And now an auntie has to raise them. But now all of the sudden, things became For real. What was going to be my response? I decided that in those two weeks before this diagnosis, as I was reading the book of Job, I had decided that God must have known what he's doing because I wasn't ever going to preach on Job. Not in my perfect palace. And as this unfolded, I began to go back to the book of Job in the months to come. And our family began to study it. And we decided that we were going to respond to hardship the way Job responded to hardship. Because I believe in chapter 1 and I believe, believe in chapter 42. We'll get to that in a minute. The good news. All of this comes, look at verse 20. And then Job arose after hearing this news, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and complained. Right? Is that what it says? Check it. Oh, my bad. My bad. My bad. Let me try verse 20 again. Then Job arose at hearing this news. He tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and he blamed God. No? I got to get this right. I'm sorry. I, I think I'm reading from the right... Then Job arose at hearing this news, verse 20, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and isolated himself from everyone else. Right? Uh, I'm sorry. I was reading from your Bible. Because, uh, no, do not say, come on right now. Because that's how we respond, isn't it? Something hits our palace and we complain. Something hits our palace and we blame God. So, get that concept. Blaming, blaming God. Sorry, we do it all the time. Something hits our palace and we separate ourselves and we isolate ourselves from everybody else. And we think that's going to deal with the issue. Look at how you're handling the stress, the stress and the crisis in your life. Look at how you're handling it. Is it working? No. Maybe this is the better response. Job arose from hearing this news. Tore his robe, right, in humility. Shaved his head to start all over again. Are you hearing this? Let's lose my identity. Let's say, God, I, I'm not in control anymore. You are. And he loses his identity and he starts from scratch. And he says, as he falls to the ground, he begins... To worship. It says naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) Hear me. Worship is always the response in every situation. Worship is always... You got it. I know you don't want to, you don't want to hear this. Worship is always the response in every situation. Right on the road, they cut you off. Pointing at them is not the response. Just turn up the praise, right? You get the bad news, anger and hatred and bitterness is not the response. Isolation is never the response. I mean, even Job had friends sent to him. I mean, they struggled at first. <laughs> but everything works out if worship is our response. And I can remember bringing Jane home after that 28 days. And we began to flood the, ho- the house with worship songs of healing. We never had end of life discussions in the next year year for 13 months. We never had end of life discussions. All we talked about was healing. All we talked about was faith. All we talked about is you're, you're going to be fine. We decided we weren't going to go there. We decided whatever happens is going to happen through our faith and not through our doubt. And as we began to do that, we realized that worship And our response of worship was building our relationship to God and how we went through hardship, worship into hardship. Listen, your response to God develops your relationship with God in hardship. So your response to God, when things get difficult is what you're going to build your relationship on God with. In that difficulty, whether it's worship or worry. Do you think God is looking at what's going on in your life? Thinking, what am I going to do? I don't, I don't know. This, is, this is too hard. Do you think God is looking at what's going on in America with the division and the racism and the problems in government? And the social media out of control. Do you think God is looking at the morality in America and and, and this shift in our culture away from the church? Do you think God is looking at this thinking that this is too difficult? No way. See, God does his greatest work in the midst of my greatest need Let me tweet that again. God does his greatest work in the midst of my greatest need. God was born for adversity. Jesus Christ was born for adversity. He's not ashamed of it. He's not afraid of it. It's not over his head. He's not at the right hand of the father, right? God's seated in heaven. Jesus at the right hand of the Holy Spirit in the third chair. He's out here working right now and moving. Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the father looking at God going, um, you got another son. We got to try this over again. This is not work. He's not concerned. He just needs your cooperation. I don't know what you're going through, but not every story ends with an enchanted kiss. Sometimes stories simply end with great memories of a great relationship. See, God has given you a number. 1940, 1960, 1980, 2000. God has given you a number and a dash. He never promised you the second number. God never promised you a second number. He promised you the first number and he gave you a dash. And he said, now do something with it for me. And some of you have messed up your dash with anger and isolation and bitterness. You've defined your dash By blaming God. I'm asking you to give God a chance this morning. I know it's difficult. But I'm not the poster child for suffering. You are not the poster child for suffering. Listen, you don't want to get to heaven someday and sit at Job's table, right? And walk, right, you set your tray down and be like, man, it was tough in America. <laughs> Consider who you're speaking to. <laughs> I mean, in the office, they called me a, they were calling me a, they were making fun of me. I went to see you at the poll and they dropped the kids off on the bus and they walked by me and they mocked me for praying at school. Yeah. Job would probably get up, take his tray, and go sit over at Paul's table, right? And be like, another American. (laughs) Am I talking truth this morning? They have this term for us. You know, they call us snowflakes. Snowflakes. I was speaking at a university, and I said that, you know, I'd use that term. And a young man came up afterwards, and he's like, snowflake, I like that. I'm like, it's not a compliment. Okay, snowflake is not a compliment. It means like you're here today, gone tomorrow, the the, the, the heat hits and you're not around. I know you're special and I know you're unique. (laughs) But hear me, we have to change our thinking. We have to change our thinking today. And as you move toward the end of the book, in the last few chapters of Job, in 38, in 30, not 40, and in, it, all the way into f- chapter 41, God begins to reframe and begins to restructure Job's thinking by simply asking him a few questions. 80 plus questions. If you look at how many times questions were repeated, it's more than 80 questions, but it begins at about 80 separate questions. And each of these questions were sent from God to Job, really not expecting an answer. They were rhetorical. And after everything that Job had gone through, God lays out this dialogue, this narrative, asking Job, you decide, can I handle this? See, most of us have never understood God well enough to even ask him the question, how long? We usually ask God why. Why me? Do you understand? In the in the book of Psalm, there are more how long, O oh Lord, than there are why, O oh Lord. Yeah, it's not a. I'm with you too on that, but that's not a come on. You know, that's not like oh, amen on that one. But hold it. How long? Really? It's called trust. And God begins to unfold these questions that begin to establish God's authority in Job's life so that he can at least count on God. If everything else around him has failed because some of you have left God at the end and you've been trying everything you've been trying alcohol, you've been, you've been trying to isolate yourself, blaming God. And that feels better for a while blaming other people and not understanding that maybe you brought this on yourself. All of these other things that you've been trying to do aren't working. Maybe you should give God a chance. And God says this, he begins to ask Job questions about God's authority and God's power. God's sovereignty and his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence about how he hung the earth in space, the creation of the universe and the making of the heavens. Job, do you know how? And then he says, what about stars and planets and galaxies? Job, do you know where they came from? And then God begins to bring up another topic about springs that created the sea. He didn't say, do you know where the seas come from? He said, do you you understand where the springs that they came? Where'd the water come? Where's the waves, the oceans. Do you know why they stop at these shorelines and they did not overcome? And he begins to set out this conversation to help Job see that God is able to do this. And he asked him about the dew and ice and clouds that drop rain about the rising of the sun in the morning and where it goes at night in it's giant splendor. And then he began to say, okay, let's get off the universe and creation. Job, do you know why? Do you know why horses gallop the way they do? Do you understand how eagles fly or the the, the lions roar? Okay, let's move past animals How about yourself? Job, do you know how the mind thinks? Do you understand how the heart beats? What about the creation of man and its intricacies in our bodies that balance our existence for a period of time? And and Job is left there saying, I never thought about that. We just don't sit around and think. Do you think science is, do you think God is afraid of science? He created it. At the end, those are great questions, but those aren't even the most important questions. I mean, think about this. There's one question that God ends with to Job that you and I rarely even think about. I never saw it until, I stu- until God asked me to study this before the diagnosis. I never saw it. And God asked Job this question. He said, Job do you understand the order of birth and death and how important it is to the balance of the universe that a birth and a death is defined by me. He asked Job, do you understand you weren't promised 75 years? Do you understand that you were not promised a hundred years? But if you think that way, it messes with your theology because you are operating out of meology. Hear me, you are not the center of the universe. All of history looks forward to God, all of the future looks back at God, all of hell looks up at God. And all of heaven looks down at him. He is the center of humankind, not you. If you can get that concept right, it will help you deal with anything that you are going through. I want you to stand this morning. I'm not sure how you feel about what you're going through. I'm not sure about your concept of God. And I know like right now you're even thinking, wow, we stood. It's time to go. I I know I've been raised in this too. You gathered your stuff and you're thinking, hmm, we get out of here before the next cars are in. You could do that. Or you could deal with this this morning. And I know practically it's going to be very difficult to do this. We we managed it this morning in the early service. But I didn't come here to play games this morning. I didn't come here to be a professional speaker. I didn't come here to waste your time or mine. I understand that what happens in the next few minutes after the foolishness of preaching is up to you. And you could simply say, wow, that was moving and I shed a few tears and walk out and continue doing the things that you've done and get the things that you've always got. That's called insanity. Or you could get honest with God on this main floor and in this balcony and give God a chance to heal you this morning of your illness, of your relationship issue, of the job strain, of these kids that are driving, of these parents that are driving. Hear me, I know some of you in this room, this was your last chance, and you told God, this is is it. Like the young lady who walked into camp in Michigan, she brought rope and put it in her luggage. She'd been to church all of her life and been to that camp many times and she was planning on wednesday night in the middle of that week of camp to go back to her cabin that had an open ceiling with trusses when all the students after the service went to the snack shack she was going to go back to her cabin and take her life but she came up one last time on that wednesday night she was over here on the left-hand side you're right she sat in a corner and she rocked back and forth said, God, you have one more chance. You have one more chance. Send somebody to me to say, I love you three times. That was her prayer. That was it. Hundreds of students in the room and leaders. And God spoke to a youth pastor's wife to walk the altars and find someone and tell them, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Don't say anything else. This youth pastor's wife walked the crowd and ended up all the way from one side of the room to the other, ended up all the way over on the other side, saw the the little 14-year-old junior high girl and the Holy Spirit said, say it to her. She sat next to her. She didn't even know really what to say, right? Other than those three words. She, She didn't even miss. She put her arm around her and she said, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you she didn't pray she didn't say anything else and the little girl turned and looked at her and said what what did what did you say she said the Holy Spirit told me to tell you that Jesus loves you three times and that night that little girl was spared because she said God you have one more chance let me tell you this morning If if you're that 14-year-old little girl, God is in this room. And God is telling you, I am love. And everything that I'm doing in your life is love. Will you just worship me? I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to trust That God knows what he's doing in your palace. Because we all live in a broken palace. It's hard to admit, but the perfect little life in the perfect little castle just does not exist. No matter how hard we try and imagine it, we live in a place for beauty and beast, of more and least, where princes and princesses, kings and queens, where dragons and jesters all meet. Where a frog is turned into a prince. Where princesses find slippers and princes to marry ever after. Well, that's how we think the story goes. But it's my broken palace. You know how the story really goes. We write new scenes to introduce old lives. We cover rusted gates with paint. We fix broken arms with band-aids. We beautify pigs with dresses. But you know, there's still rusted gates and broken arms and ugly pigs. You see, it's my broken palace where Rapunzel wonders what it's really like outside the castle. Letting down her hair for a prince to rescue her from her despair. It may look like a castle, but nobody sees the hassle, the struggle, the tussle. It may look like a palace, but nobody sees the malice, the loss or the dross. Because we all live behind the moat and the wall. Behind the shrubs and the facade of it all The palace is not what it seems The marquee isn't saying Who's really playing It's not for real, the palace really is surreal It's where we sweep our brokenness Under the rug Or put it in the closet Or say, I don't really have it Where we ignore what's there for all to see That we hate each other And the weather Get upset with our neighbor or a brother We tell each other, you're a bother Our parents to shut up Because we're fed up Because we sweep our brokenness under the rug and keep it in the closet or say, I don't really have it. See, since hardship and trial are part of Christianity and scripture, why would we think that it's so upsetting that hardship and trial could be in Christians and culture? See, my broken palace is really a place where the king returns to the castle to rule. It's a mansion where the pain becomes his platform, where the mess becomes his message, where the chaos is placed on his canvas, where crisis becomes purpose, where the tragedy becomes triumph. It's where hardship ultimately becomes history. It's where the artist produces his greatest work and places it on display like a parade just to say, these are my kings and queens who birthed princes and princesses who slay dragons God has called you to slay your dragon I don't know what your dragon is this morning but you need to bring it before the throne of God in worship I'm going to ask you to do something and I know this is going to be very difficult I'm going to ask you to respond by coming to this altar by stepping into the aisle by into the aisles. Maybe, you know, I I, I don't know how you're going to do this. And I know it's almost a, it's an out that we don't have enough room to respond. But please, don't just sit there. Don't just sit there. You need to take a step. You need to step out of the pew. If you're in a pew and you're up in that corner and everyone's filled this place, right? At least step out. Will you just make, will you just give God a chance by making one step just one move when they begin this song i want you to make your move to god right now before i pray for you will you do that right now come on step out step out come come to your healing give god a chance come on front to back side to side fill this place up come to the sides of the place right In the balcony, come to the front of the balcony maybe or step into that aisle.